Olaso. This morning we will return to the second of the four immeasurables, compassion. I think we all know from our own experience that it's relatively easy to experience episodic compassion, compassion that rises and then just goes right away. When we witness some sentient being, human or non-human, being harmed by someone else, it's very, very easy to feel compassion, sympathy for the victim. And very often, the nor in the normal course of things, as we norm as normal people feel compassion for the victims, we feel outrage. Uh, maybe even hatred, maybe even violent hatred and self-righteous violent hatred for those who inflict the injury. In cases of genocide, racism, ethnic cleansing, um, brutality to children, cruelty to animals and so forth, it's one of the easiest occasions for self-righteous anger to arise out of that self-righteous anger, especially when it feels fully justified, self-righteous anger then can come hatred, come hatred, comes violence, and then we may feel, I now have the Buddha on my side, you know, to strike terror and to, you know, and retaliate. And then someone else watching us can see that we are the victimizers and there's the victim, and they will feel self-righteous anger against us, and that's how samsara continues endlessly. When we consider something I think is a ubiquitous truth, that is an all-pervasive truth, that unwholesome action, whether it's actions of greed, actions of hostility, and so forth, that all types of unwholesome action, non-virtuous action, all of them without exception, arise from mental afflictions. They are aroused by mental affliction. Then we see that the unwholesome actions are really like symptoms of a disease. That's really best, because they simply do not arise without, nobody has a wholesome, happy mind and then goes off and hurts someone else deliberately. It just doesn't happen, right? And so, such unwholesome action, behavior in the world of speech and of body, these are the outer symptoms of a mind, or a mind that is afflicted. But as I've mentioned before, and I think it's obvious to all of us, none of us wake up in the morning and decide to have a particular mental affliction that will dominate the day. Afflictions happen to us, like swine flu, like cancer, like AIDS, like Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's. Nobody wants them, they just happen, and once they've happened, then we are the victim of them. And in some cases, in some types of diseases, you know, there may be, oh, I've heard, I've heard in advanced cases of uh, AIDS, that it can really alter one's behavior as well. You know. So, and who can blame such a person who has the disease? But I've heard that it can modify one's speech and so forth. I remember this when I was translating for Gyatotamuche in the, in the 90s. So when we consider that, then I think of a, a, an analogy that my friend Machi Ricard has mentioned a few times. I don't know whether it's his or came, or came from his own teachers, but I think it's very helpful. And that is if you imagine, imagine being out on a lake boating boating in your boat and you're just kind of cruising along having a nice time and then you see this this speedboat bearing down on you going full speed ahead and going right for a collision course and you look at this look at this speedboat and say what's wrong with this person it's crazy how arrogant and you say, hey stop it you jerk hey slow down hey wait you idiot you know you get really upset how reckless how reckless 
And so when the boat comes by and it just misses you, you see it's empty. And then suddenly all that outrage and you idiot and oh, you jerk and somebody should call the police and all of that vanishes. All of that vanishes in an instant when you see the boat's empty. And then afterwards, if you should find out that the person who was riding the boat actually fell overboard and drowned, then you'd feel, oh, oh, <laughs> you know, then the whole attitude changes entirely, right? When we witness other people engaging in unwholesome actions, it's very easy to grasp onto them as if they are really at the wheel. They're totally in charge, they are autonomous, they're independent, and they're really rotten. That is, the person, him or herself, is really rotten, bad. And I know I'm not that bad, therefore I'm better, and therefore I feel contempt, and therefore anger, and so forth and so on. So, so much of the retaliation and the violence in the world stems exactly out of this kind of delusion of grasping onto the other as intrinsically evil, inferior, and so forth, and then retaliating. And my speculation is also that when we experience this modern epidemic, it's been going on for some centuries now, of guilt, of guilt. I always say guilt in Tibetan is maybe where we really grasp guilt as where we reify ourselves. First of all, I really am. I really have a body. This autonomous self that's really in charge of the body and mind. And then we do something bad, something we know is as unwholesome, very regrettable, and then it sticks right to this intrinsic identity. And now I know that I am really bad. And it's just not my deed, because the deed is long, long history. It happened a long time ago. But it stuck to me like some mucus, like some toxin, sub, toxic substance that stuck to me. And, and actually it came from me. Therefore, the source of that evil action being me, I must be evil. And so the action comes and goes, but the sense of I am bad, I am evil, I'm inferior, and so forth, that sticks. And then we have this content contempt and hatred directed towards the self but in both cases we're dealing with a fiction there is no such autonomous self neither here as an object of self-contempt and likewise when we look outwards and we feel contempt outwards there's nothing out there corresponding to this reified sense of other of this other person this other group religious fundamentalists republicans democrats what have you there's no one out there corresponding to this truly existent object of contempt that we've latched onto and for whom we feel self-righteous anger. So this is where these four immeasurables, if they're really to take deep root and be transformative, I'm utterly convinced they must be rooted in wisdom. It's not just putting a nice friendly emotion where there was an unfriendly emotion and trying to just go emotion to emotion. This unfriendly emotion that is, or so, the opposites of the four immeasurables, malice, just you want to know the opposites? Malice, opposite of loving-kindness. Cruelty, the opposite of compassion. Envy and cynicism, the opposite of empathetic joy. And craving and hostility for those near and far as the opposite of equanimity. To apply antidotes for the opposites, which are rooted in delusion,
we apply the four immeasurables, but they must be rooted in wisdom. So that's why I really love to see these, the cultivation of the four immeasurables as drenched as thoroughly as possible in the wisdom teachings, the insight teachings. Then the transformation can take place from the root and not simply be a little bit of nice feeling on top. So, enough preamble, but I would like to now go into deep waters with respect to the cultivation of compassion and actually allow ourselves to focus both on victims and victimizers and see if we can level this out in our hearts to feel compassion both for the victims of other people's behavior, which is very appropriate, but also feel compassion for people who are victims of their own mental afflictions and manifested and unwholesome behavior. Right? So if we feel compassion for those who display the symptoms, we should also feel compassion for those who have the disease. There we go. So let's have one 24-minute session. Before venturing out on the noble paths of cultivating wisdom and compassion, we first of all seek to cultivate an enhanced degree of sanity, of mental balance, in order to do that, let's first of all settle the body in its natural state, imbued with the three qualities of relaxation, stillness, and vigilance. Then in order to settle your inner voice, the inner commentary in its natural state, which is one of effortless silence, settle your respiration in its natural rhythm, unimpeded and effortless. And throughout the course of the session, now and again check up on the breathing to see that it is in no way labored or restricted but flows effortlessly without restraint.
And for a little while, settle your mind, resting in the field of the body, setting your mind at ease in stillness and clarity, attending for a little while to the sensations of the in and outflow of the breath. Many people have found that by deeply settling the mind, settling the mind in its own state, its own natural resting place, or by going into the very nature of awareness itself, many have found that compassion or loving-kindness spring forth spontaneously, without any specific cultivation. One discovers compassion rather than developing it. But here we venture into the practice of developing, of cultivating compassion, which is really simply a skillful means for unveiling the capacity, the potential for compassion that already is present within our own awareness. We're not cultivating compassion out of thoughts or imagery, but using thoughts and imagery to unveil the same capacity or potential that lies dormant within our own hearts, within awareness itself.
So as we venture now into this act of cultivation of compassion, I shall not give specific examples, but invite you to choose your own. Choose, first of all, if you will, someone you know of personally, or perhaps by way of the media. It's your choice. Some individual who's been gravely harmed by another, someone else acting out of anger, out of selfishness, exploitation, greed, arrogance. One person appears to triumph over the other, but at the other's expense. Gravely injured and deeply wounded. Bring to mind such a situation as vividly as you can. Attend closely, first of all, to the plight. It may be primarily psychological suffering, it may be physical pain, a combination of both, on the part of the victim. Attend closely and let this person's situation become real for you. As you arouse this heart of compassion, you may, if you wish, once again, visualize this orb of light symbolizing your own pristine awareness at your heart. And with each in-breath, arouse the yearning. May you be free of such suffering and pain, and free of the lingering effects that may go on for months or years due to such injury. And with each in-breath, imagine drawing in this darkness, this burden of pain. And drawing it in and dissolving it into your own heart and dissolving it there without trace. 
And with each in-breath, imagine the burden of suffering and pain lightening, the cloud dissipating, and this person finding relief, serenity, peace of mind. And imagine this person being free. The pain of the the past not forgotten, but healed. Then direct your attention to the person who inflicted this harm. Perhaps this person is very clearly in the wrong, and the other person is clearly a victim, and simply that, in no way responsible. This, of course, does happen. Direct your attention to the person who inflicted such harm, Now look through the behavior, which is reprehensible, without doubt. But look through like a physician to the underlying affliction, the toxin of the mind that arouse such behavior. At the very ground there is certain to be ignorance, there is certain to be delusion, And you may also discern other derivative mental afflictions. Recall whether you yourself have ever experienced such mental afflictions yourself? And recall what they felt like, how they influenced your mind, your speech, your body, your way of engaging with others. What was it like firsthand to experience something similar to the mental afflictions this person was dominated by? You may see for yourself why these are called afflictions, because they are causes of torment, 
directing your attention once again to the person who inflicted such harm. With the awareness that you yourself have the capacity to be free of all mental afflictions. And therefore this person clearly does as well. Arouse the yearning. May you, like me, may you, like myself, be free of the of the afflictions underlying such harmful behavior. May you be free of both the disease and the symptoms. And with each in-breath, imagine drawing in this darkness and dissolving it into your heart. And imagine with each in-breath this person's mental afflictions subsiding, sanity being restored. And imagine this person free. Of the afflictions and therefore of any tendency to repeat such harmful behavior. Now redirect your attention, this time to a group, to two groups of human beings, where there are the, victor, the victims and the victimizers. The violence, the injustice may be based on race, on ideology, on greed, on hatred, for any number of reasons. Clearly identify those who are victims and those who are the victimizers. And practice in the same way.
and imagine both the victims and the victimizers, free of suffering and its causes. Imagine forgiveness and remorse. And finally, if you will, bring to mind someone who has harmed you. Where you were the victim and the other was the victimizer. Perhaps simply out of delusion and ignorance, but perhaps out of some other derivative mental affliction as well. as you attend to yourself simply as a sentient being. Who may still experience suffering, perhaps resentment, from the harm inflicted, the aftershocks of injury. Arouse the yearning, may I be free, free of any lingering pain, any lingering distress. May I be free of the past and free of resentment. each in-breath, draw in your own darkness, the darkness of mental affliction, the darkness of suffering, and dissolve it into your heart.
and attend to the person who harmed you. Look through the behavior and attend to the underlying causes, to the mental afflictions, and to the person who may be free, who is not intrinsically afflicted, but has the capacity for freedom. And with each in-breath arouse the yearning, may you, like myself, be free of all mental afflictions, and with each in-breath imagine it becoming so. Imagine that you are both free, that there is remorse where remorse is appropriate, and there is forgiveness where forgiveness is appropriate. Release it all. Release the memories, the appearances, release the emotions and the aspirations, release it all. And let your awareness come to rest in its own innate luminosity. bring the session to a close. We have just a few questions, but the last one is a juicy one. 
After a while, Noah, who wrote the juicy one, well, they're all really good, but the last one's very juicy. I think you're going get to get, start getting some fan mail after a while. <laughs> Hola, so here's the first one. I can give a short answer. You say, what cannot be scientifically tested is metaphysics. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say I don't think I've ever said it. What I have said, and it's a definitional issue, and I'm, it's not the right definition, it's just one I use, is the category of the metaphysical. I would define that as, as or a metaphys metaphysical assertion. A metaphysical assertion is one that cannot be experientially verified or repudiated. You just can't get to it. Not experientially. That's what I would call metaphysical. So clearly, and this is an enormously important point, I so, so often I encounter Westerners, just recently, one very fine Western scholar of Buddhism made, made a comment at a conference, oh, the Buddha was anti-metaphysical from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. He was anti-metaphysical. What does that even mean? Metaphysical for whom? And that is, the Buddha said, declared very clearly in the Pali Canon. I don't think anybody can test it unless they simply, I don't know, just want to throw it out helter-skelter. The Buddha said, reported that on the night of his enlightenment, he said, I saw with direct knowledge my own past lives. In the first watch of the night, second watch of the night, I saw with my own direct knowledge the, the previous lives of countless other sentient beings. So, we don't have to believe him, obviously. But he's saying that the existence of past lives of his own and of others was not metaphysical for him because he could directly observe it. Moreover, in the third watch of the night, seeing the mechanics of samsara, the, the, the regularities, the patterns, I don't really like the word laws of karma because this is a, a phrasing that comes from the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, where God superimposed laws on his creation and then he punishes those who violate them and he rewards those who follow them. That's a different system. The Buddha did not impose any laws on nature, so these are not laws of karma in the sense of anybody imposing laws. But there are patterns and there are regularities. And I think that's what, what, what we see really in nature, the regularities of physics, the patterns of, 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 of causality within physics. So the simple point here, and I won't belabor it too much, is that what is metaphysical for one person is not necessarily metaphysical for another. What is metaphysical for one culture may not be metaphysical for another. And as I give one, just one example, the lemon that I visualized a couple of days ago, that was definitely, I knew with certain knowledge. I could say, on the night of my enlightenment at Phuket, I could see a lemon. Because I saw it with direct knowledge. There was no question about it. It was 100% lemon. But for all of you, lemon or no lemon, Lemon or no, you didn't even know, you didn't even know where to ask about lemons. You were in the dark about my lemon. Okay, so you may want to call me a sourpuss, but I was really knowledgeable about my lemon, you know. So the simple point there is that this has been throughout, th throughout history, and I think I've talked about this in the past. The existence of atoms was metaphysical in the 19th century, it's physics now. The existence of exoplanets 30 years ago was metaphysics and now it's science. And so science is one mode of experience, it's not the other mode of experience. And I'll give an example, the lemon. There was no way to scientifically determine what kind of fruit I was visualizing. No way. So from a scientific perspective, 
My lemon was a metaphysical issue. From my perspective, not scientific, I just visualized a lemon. That's not a, sci that's not a scientific experiment. That's called visualizing a lemon. So my lemon was not metaphysical for me, but for a neuroscientist with MRI and EEG and all the other measures, it's metaphysical. So that's what I really said. Do you see, do you see a role for creative poetry? Thinking on images or thinking in images and metaphors, is there a role for that? Absolutely, yes. Think of Darwin, natural selection and evolution are metaphors after all. Poetic science is not all science inspired by a, a by a, um, maybe, I can't remember, by poetry or po po what have you. Um, it is certainly true. So I think this opens up a very interesting issue. But again, metaphysics is not simply that which cannot be tested scientifically, that which cannot be tested experientially. And that includes first-person experience, which is largely cordoned off or blocked out and not considered to be scientific. But of course, that's how we know we have thoughts. That's how we know we have first-person experience, not with an MRI or EEG for all a subjective experience. Am I seeing orange when I look at Mugi's shirt? I know. But you won't know just by looking at the visual cortex. The only way you could know is if I look at something and I say orange and then you see the correlate and you say, okay, since Alan gave this response or since Alan was looking at what we know to be orange, then you get a Rosetta Stone. You get a translation device for seeing, oh, when this kind of neural correlate is, is active, then this is what's happening subjectively. But you don't get it just by looking at the correlate. Neurons don't turn orange. So, coming back to the question, which I said I'd give a brief response to, ha, ha, ha. Um, might there be poetic science? Sure. The reason I'm not elaborated on it much is because um, I don't think I have much mm, natural creativity or, yeah, natural creativity for poetry. I was really dwelling on this and I thought of, there was, a once, there was once a yogi from Nantucket who really wished he lived in Phuket. <laughs> but I couldn't go any further. <laughs> so I'm just showing you how poetically deprived I am. And so this poetic science, this is for people who have a poetic creativity, which I manifestly do not. And that is an empirical fact for me. It is not a, meta, not a metaphysical one. Oh, so, so here's a question from, or a question comment from Adelina. So, so fascinating and clarifying what you said this morning about coarse mind perceptions, uh, um, constraining, constraining subtle mind awareness. Yeah, constraining or um, obscuring, obscuring. Do I understand this well? In settling the mind in this practice with subtle with subtle mental perception, there is observing of arisings from the substrate. Quite true, relative. This morning, you said, if I, remember, if I remember well, arising from Dhammadhatu, absolute. I suppose we may say both as Dhammadhatu is radiating through the substrate. Yeah, yes and no. Um, I think I didn't make it quite clear enough this morning that I was referring to a brief discussion from, was it yesterday or this morning? About the, I think it was yesterday, about the 18, the 18, 18 datus. So the visual perception, visual organ, and visual field. And then that for five, five sensory modes, physical modes, so that makes 15. The organ, perception, and the field. And then the mental, and I did unpack that a bit, mental consciousness, mental faculty, which I'm pointing to maybe substrate consciousness would be a good candidate, and then the mental field. And the Sanskrit term, 
the Sanskrit term for the, for the domain of experience in which purely mental events occur, is called Dharma Datu. It's one of the 18 Datus, but it's Dharma Datu, and therefore that's purely on the relative, the conventional level. Okay? But it's interesting, the same term. Now, in Tibetan, there's no error there because they speak of Kam Chopke. So 18 Kam, Kam being Tibetan translation of Datu, but then when they speak of Dharma Datu as ultimate nature of reality, they use a different term, Chuki Ying, Chu Ying, Chu Ying. So they split the two. So Chuki Ying goes to ultimate reality, emptiness, and Chuki Kam is completely relative, just the domain of the mind. But it's also true that the, the displays in the substrate, or the, the displays in the relative Dharma Datu, the mental events, thoughts, images, and so forth, manifesting in the Dharma Datu conventionally, what's their ultimate source, according to Dzogchen and so forth? Of course, it's the ultimate. Just as relative bodhicitta emerges from ultimate bodhicitta, which is rikpa, primordial consciousness, so likewise there. Okay? So, there's a little bit more here. Sometimes you use the word presence. How would you locate or define this in relation to non-grasping and to awareness? Yeah, the, um, this, the, the term rikpa choksha, rikpa choksha, which is used a lot in Dzogchen, pertaining to the breakthrough phase, or tekchu phase of Dzogchen practice. Rikpa Choksha is often called uh, by open presence, open presence. And so, and that's a nice translation, Matthew Ricard, among my Western Dharma friends, I think a very, very good understanding and, and a lot of meditation and experience in the practice of Dzogchen. So that's his translation, and he certainly knows that He's much more thoroughly trained in that tradition than I. So it's a good translation, open presence. But it's also helpful to recognize what is the Tibetan term, and it's rikpa choksha. Rikpa is pristine awareness, and choksha is just letting be. So it's just a letting be as you rest in pristine awareness. But the open presence is, really captures the spirit of it, and so presence here is simply that that resting in mindfulness without distracting, without grasping, just being present with as opposed to grasping onto the cognitive fusion, the being carried away, carried away by the judgment, the manipulation, and so forth and so on. Okay? So we are cultivating this presence with respect to the space of the mind and its contents when we're settling the mind in its natural state. And when practicing Dzogchen proper, or Dzogchen per se, then we're practicing this open presence, but 360 degrees open, with no selectivity as we are in settling the mind. So the settling the mind is like a, it's a little, like a, um, how do you say, a microcosm or a more selective expression of the same quality of awareness, but it is selective in the sense of it's aiming to just the space of the mind, and as your, as your awareness, as your attention withdraws into that single-pointedly, then your mind will shut down, appearances will vanish, your mind will dissolve into substrate consciousness, and appearances will dissolve into the substrate. So, shamatha. Whereas if your awareness is completely open, in thoroughly open presence, then there is no withdrawal. And so, rikpa choksha, open presence, is not a means for achieving shamatha. And there's no reason to believe it would, because why would, you, why would your mind withdraw when you're leaving it wide open? Okay? It won't withdraw all by itself. Okay? So, there's two out of three. Then the third one. So, dear Alan, forgive my ignorance. I really had to pause there. I'm really not sure I can. Uh, 
But I was feeling benevolent today, so I decided, okay, we'll give him a break. So, okay, my son. <laughs> Forgive my ignorance, but why? Why must the revolution of the mind sciences wait for us Westerners? I never said Westerners. By the way, this man is from... What's your ethnic background? Half Chinese, and he says, us Westerners. <laughs> I know. I think moderners is really better. Mugi here is, is somewhat modern, too, living in Ulaanbaatar, man of the world, world traveler, fluent in three languages at least, and so forth. So I think it is on us moderners. The notion of Westerner, I think, is pretty much antiquated. Okay, so why, why must the revolution of the mind scientists wait for us moderners to achieve shamatha and start a contemplative observatory? Are there not already some realized yogis out there who would be willing to, att to attend the next Mind and Life conference and demonstrate their paranormal abilities? You see, he asked juicy ones. I imagine some of the more visible ones, like levitating, walking through walls, multiplying objects, etc., might be quite effective and putting an end to the whole scientific materialism debate and really kickstart, kickstart the revolution. Like that, kickstart it. Like a good motorcycle, yes. <coughs> Okie dokie. 